Hello, and welcome back to Real Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm your host today, Caitlin Redwing. You may notice that my co-host, Sam Mosier, is not here today, but that's all right. We will continue on without him uh, while he takes a little bit of time off. Today, as you see on your screen, if you're watching, our guest is Kate Sanchez, the founder and editor-in-chief of But Why Though, a geek community site featuring pop culture news, reviews, podcasts, and a lot more. Um Kate is also a recruiter for Iron Galaxy Studios, focusing on talent sourcing and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She, just a little bit more about her, she has a master's in anthropology of pop culture, which is, I read that, and I was like, that is a sick-ass degree to have. Didn't know you could get that. Very cool. (laughs) Um, And she began her career podcasting to review television, movies, and explain why different facets of popular culture matter. So... Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Kate. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I a little bit on the degree piece. I was I was a trained sociologist, anthropologist, and then uh, I just chose pop culture as a specific area. So it gives me a really cool title, and it's really just like a boring, <laughs> a boring one. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem boring, um, but I <laughs> totally understand why you went with it because yes, it does. It like makes me want to go back to school, which is a ridiculous <laughs> thought to have because I hated school, <laughs> could not wait to leave. But I'm like, oh, yeah, I would love to study anthropology and pop culture. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, today, we'll kind of, we'll talk a little bit about your career in the industry, how, but why though has came to be and grown over the years. And then we can end a little bit talking about like video games and pop culture. Um, but first I'd like to start off with a little get to know you question and which is what is like one video game IP that you would love to see adapted into another form. And that could be movies or TV, but it could also be like a book or a comic. I just would love your thoughts. Mm. So this is one of those where like the, like my favorite, IP in existence is Tomb Raider. Um, so I feel like that's always going to be my answer. And it, it's it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a cop out because like we're going to get an animated series. There have been yeah. comics. There have been movies. Um, I actually would really like to see it as like a very long TV series, but like not something super serious like The Last of Us, more of like TNT's The Librarians, like that like high like Whoa. camp adventure, like core, like yeah, like the mummy, but a TV series. Yes, essentially, and Lara Croft at the center. So that that yeah, might that would be the thing. I'm just like imagining it, and I'm like, yeah, just like yeah. calling it the mummy, but a TV ser- series, like sold me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, Tomb Raider I, I am. Is... <laughs> I am looking forward to the Amazon Prime series. Um, especially, yeah, Phoebe Waller Bridge is yeah. developing it. Um, which I miss her and her like witty <laughs> creative writing from Fleabag. Um, yeah. Every day I think about that show. <laughs> I'm hoping that it, it gives Laura some, I, I don't know. I think for me, like I'm a huge fan of the adventure genre. Um, actually I got into college cause I chose classical archeology span as my major. Um, mm-hmm. That was like the major I came in with. Um, I went through like three 
Um, but like that was the one that I came in with because of how much I love Tomb Raider and Indiana Jones. And like that's always been like what I had wanted to do. Um, yeah. And so like for me, what I've been missing from all the Tomb Raider adaptations outside of like the ones from the 2000s is just the sense of like the high camp, like adventure genre style. And I'm worried that Amazon's going to go like the prestige TV uh, TV route, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge is really good at writing humor. So I'm hoping she kind of like recenters it back where I want it to go. So um, yeah, that would be a good balance of like, you get the budget from Amazon, but then you get like humor, quirkiness, like yeah. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Gin. Has any other names been attached to that show? I only remember seeing Phoebe. I just was... Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I know I'm I'm really excited for the animated series that Powerhouse Animation's doing um, with Legendary and Netflix. That's going to yeah. be yeah. And I just I love everything Powerhouse does. So what else has Powerhouse done? Castlevania. They did all of Castlevania. Oh. They did Sesmanos, which is a um, like Mexican grindhouse like style series with uh, martial arts grindhouse like in there. And there's like they fight demons, and it's really cool. Um, that only got a season, and then they just did Skull Island. Um, okay, and, and they also did Blood of Zeus, which was like a uh, Greek mythology one. So, oh, I yeah. think I watched that. <laughs> I <Yeah. laughs> or I started it. I have such a like weird memory of it, but not like it might have been on in the background. And I <laughs> was it a TV show? I might have started that. Yes, and yeah, yeah. They're they're pro- they're like one of like. The I would say they're the leading Western uh, studio for adult animation. Okay, so I'll have to go back and finish it. Me not finishing it says nothing about the show. I am just like <laughs> very bad at starting things and not finishing it. Mostly with like games and but also TV shows. Yeah. Like I just there are too many things that come out and I want to watch everything, and so I start everything and don't finish it. <laughs> um, cool. Well, yeah, I like. I like Tomb Raider. I don't even know what I would say if I had to answer this question and I wrote it and I tried to think of what it would be. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know um, because we got The Last of Us, which is what my answer probably would have been like two years ago. Yeah. Um, but also like, I don't know. I am curious to see. I'm hoping like what a Zelda live action would look like um, mm-hmm. or animated. I yeah. But if they do, I kind of hope they keep like Link as a mute. I think that would be just like an interesting, like I don't know how they would, would do it, but be I really interesting. Yeah, I would like to see that happen. Just like keeping him like a mute and I don't know. I just I love Zelda, so I would love to see more of that world explored. Cool. Well, we let's go ahead and uh, just again talk more about you. But I'd love to know like more about your career. Um, specifically like as I was looking at your like kind of your titles on LinkedIn um, in addition of your work like covering video games and pulp culture you have had a full-time career this whole time uh, now as a recruiter previously you mentioned you were at Meta um, or that might have been before we started recording but you (laughs) used to work at Meta as a senior research analyst and diversity specialist and I would love to know like I guess more like what is a diversity specialist yeah. Um, so, I mean, the easy way to, to, to think about it is uh, 
that's just like, that was my, that's what I specialized in. So when I did recruiting strategy, I focused on um, DE and I uh, recruiting strategies. How do you attract talent that doesn't look like um, from underrepresented groups? Um, so mm-hmm. I have had almost a decade in DEI work. Um, I started one in my uh, master's thesis research and then into my doctoral research when I was doing interviews with um, different religious communities. Uh, Cause my focus for that was how does the pop culture we consume impact the way that we view people that we've never met in person, specifically Muslims in the U S was like that main focus area. And then from there, because I was learning all of the, um, the intricacies of uh, the intricacies and marginalizations of that one community in different spaces, I then pulled that and started doing work at um, IDCL, which is uh, Institute for Diversity and Civic Life here in Texas. There we focused on building white papers for legislation to help impact um, underrepresented groups here in Texas. Like I've, uh, I've built databases on hate crimes in Texas, which is something really weird to say, but something that's really necessary. So you can like flag things that are happening in the state. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of research on that end. So Essentially, what a DEI specialist means is that I am doing a function that serves an org in this and at Meta very specifically, it was in HR in recruiting, but I'm doing it with diversity as my main vector. So I'm primarily making sure that we are sourcing talent. I um, underrepresented talent. I'm primarily doing um, talent market talent and market mapping against um, existing census information. I am... Uh, teaching people how to use mm-hmm. tools in a way that get around the way that they're built uh, to get around coded bias. Uh, so essentially a, something like that would be like, Hey, when you do LinkedIn searches, you don't just take the first four pages. You have to exhaust your search because LinkedIn prioritizes certain, um, certain users based on how much of their profile they fill out. But historically, the data shows that non-white folks are less likely to have a complete profile, which then pushes them down in search results. And so it's a lot of doing research on how the tools we use to recruit talent and keep talent with us um, in and of themselves are not always the best to source people from because of the coded bias and then teaching people how to kind of source against that. Uh, and recruit outside of that and like what you can do to uh, to have that your focus. So that's a really long way to say it, it is, it's literally just a DE&I role. Um, I do sensitivity reading consultancy on the side um, for culture stuff. Um, and even at Iron Galaxy as a recruiter, I've been, I've only been there uh, three months now, but uh, I'm working with um, our diversity program manager over there, who's an amazing person. Um, but I'm working with her on like diversity strategies and recruiting and lending mm-hmm. her um, my ear and my expertise with almost a decade in the work in academia, tech, and then now gaming. So interesting. Um, you talk about like finding new ways to recruit outside of the usual, like the LinkedIn, um, Indeed, those kind of things. What what are those tools or other outlets to well, like, recruit from? So, yeah, so there are a few different ways you can do it. So I don't like to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Bath so my first goal is always to teach people how to use our existing tools in a way that under that you understand 
the talent that you're surfacing and how you can exhaust that pool, which will naturally create a more uh, diverse selection of talent versus only sticking to the first couple of pages, which is what a lot of recruiters do because they're just trying to get people in because um, they're really metrics driven. Um, Iron Galaxy isn't like that. Meta was though. Um, but so far as other ways to recruit people outside of an existing platform, a lot of that is paying attention to game developer hashtags on Twitter um, or wherever people are using them. Um, it's looking at affinity organizations with an existing, um, with an ex- like ERGs. So um, looking at people who have been involved in ERGs at like Xbox, stuff like that making a list, a repository of those names so you know what to look for, um, partnering with um, diversity orgs, so professional organizations um, like uh, Girls Who Code, stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, understanding what in an academic profile will signify that somebody is from an underrepresented group. So if somebody received uh, money from the Grace Hopper Foundation, foundation a um, which is a... Um, that is a stipend or fellowship that is given to to a woman in the software engineering space or the computer engineering space, mostly in tech. Um, they've changed it a little bit over time, um, but that lets you know that somebody got that piece. Um, the Gates Millennium Foundation uh, scholarships as well, which are geared towards black and brown communities. And a lot of it is understanding all of the different pieces that go into making a person in a career sense and finding ways to find that talent because a lot of the times the tools that we use um, bury them. And so you just have to get more creative. So instead of putting in a a Boolean string, I don't know if you know Boolean searches, but it's Mm -hmm. just a series of ands or ors um, that help you search anything. You can do that on Google, LinkedIn, anything. Um, But doing that, but then maybe adding in a filter for like uh, the management leaders of tomorrow, which is a professional leadership organization geared towards Latinos, like doing something like that to where you are active, you are proactively sourcing out talent that may be hidden. And and one of the things that usually happens when you talk to a diversity source or a recruiter um, that I've experienced in my about five years in the industry, specifically in recruiting functions is, oh, well, why do you target, like, why are you doing specific sourcing for um, underrepresented groups? And the answer is, is you have to, you have to be intentional. Um, you can obscure faces all you want. You can um, remove names all you want. But at the end of the day, when you're using tools that have biases built into them, you have to overcome that. And dedicating time to source for diverse candidates is the best way to do that. And then also, like that does not mean that like if there is an if if there's like a um, a majority represented person in that, I'm not going to like, I will still, I'm still searching for them too. Cause it's all mm-hmm. about the talent first. It's just realizing the different ways that you can find that talent. Okay. That's yeah. I'm learning a lot, a lot of things that I, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot would not like, have, like thought of, but yeah, yeah it's a recruiting process is actually, it, it's, it's a lot. Um, especially, so I am recruiter is my title, but I do sourcing and what that, that, what that means very specifically is I'm the person in LinkedIn trying to find talent that is on, that is, um, these are like untapped, but like cold leads essentially, if you've ever worked sales, mm-hmm. 
Um, so finding the talent that is out there and then doing those initial outreaches. And so what that involves, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, is there is a lot of data analysis involved. So like I've taught myself SQL. I've done um, a lot of work to become a good data analyst and like ha- learning how to make data visualizations of the landscapes that I'm interacting with because one of the biggest mistakes that people make in any people field, so like in HR or in DEI more generally, is to um, not understand that there are ways to quantify your work in a way that proves its impact. Because a lot of the times people, um, specifically when I was working at Meta, you don't move the needle unless you can prove impact and proving impact comes through data. Um, so the recruiting process at any organization, um, whether you're big or small, is a lot more complicated than just looking at resumes. A lot of the time it is working with teams collaboratively to find out their needs and then taking it to the wider job market and um finding new ways to surface talent and also advocating when people may have different backgrounds than the standard. So they may have gone to a two-year college instead of a four-year university. They may have, they may be self-taught as a coder instead of somebody who went to um, one of the top, like RIT, which is one of the top game mm-hmm. development uh, companies in, or uh, colleges in the United States. So like it's learning how to surface talent, advocate for talent, and then make sure that you're mapping it in a way that can move the needle on larger um, initiatives across the company. So you, you are like, uh, you wear many different hats. <laughs> yes. Like in your job. Because, I, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, before if someone was like, what does a recruiter do? Like I knew it was more complicated, but to me, I'm like, I don't know. They look at resumes and yes, like scroll and look at like, the first couple of pages on LinkedIn, just not thinking that like, yeah, underrepresented groups might not have a fully completed profile and that the yeah. algorithm would not yeah. benefit the easiest, them. The easiest way I explain it is for, for years, for, for decades, like since, since my mom, like my mom's in her sixties now, like I was always taught never to attach your photo to things. It's why my name mm-hmm. is Catherine or Kate's. It's why I, my mom taught me to not speak with an accent and she didn't want me mm-hmm. to speak Spanish. And a lot of that is because there are preconceived notions that we have baked into us through um, generational trauma and survival that we take with us when we fill out a LinkedIn profile. There are, mm-hmm. I think, statistically black candidates um, attach their photo, a profile picture less than white applicants um, and uh, white users of LinkedIn. But what that does is there is a star system on LinkedIn that the more complete your profile is, the farther you go, that includes a profile picture. So that alone, somebody doing something that they've been taught by their parents or they've been taught as a way to survive in institutionalized racism and managing the biases that people may hold implicitly as well as explicitly is it it's, it's presenting them with a handicap when they're using a platform that will now push them to page 10 instead of page three. Um, so there's a lot of like research and understanding the trends of how people make resumes and understanding that not every community has been taught how to advocate themselves, advocate for themselves on the job market in the same way. Yeah. And now, I mean, there's still institutional, uh, institutionalized racism, Mm -hmm. just that's something that still exists. Um, What would you recommend to people that are like from marginalized communities 
if when they're making their profile, like, do you still recommend yeah. like, yes, like attached profile pictures? Um, what yeah. else should they be doing? So make, sh- so I think LinkedIn is the best spot. So LinkedIn has the highest rate of um, recruiter usage. So I always advocate if you are somebody who does not believe you need to be on LinkedIn, you are wrong. Um, unless you are an artist, then you should be on ArtStation. Um, but if you are not in an art function, you need to be on LinkedIn and you need to have your profile as complete as you possibly can. And it it comes with two things where sometimes we've been taught to hide, hide our identity to protect ourselves. But at the end of the day, if you do not fill out everything, you're probably never going to show up in somebody's search. And the first goal is to show up in somebody's search. And I can tell you the other thing when you look at it is to make sure that you are shaping your profile for not just the job you have, but the job you want. So when you're when you're ready to switch on that open to work, like little toggle on your LinkedIn profile, look up all the job descriptions of the ideal job. Like where do you see yourself? And what you need to do is you need to go through your experiences and your past work experiences. And you need to make sure that you are highlighting the skills that you had in those jobs that are directly playing into your new into the new path that you want to take because what will happen from the back end piece a recruiter and this happens at you know and the a lot of what I'm saying comes from my work at Meta because I was there for so long um, and it was working at an enterprise scale, right? So we're talking a recruiting team of thousands, not just like four. And in order to catch somebody's attention who is going into LinkedIn and sort looking through candidates to um, introduced to a role, you have to understand how to use the keywords in the job description and how to make sure you're highlighting that you hit those minimum those minimum requirements. Because when a recruiter puts it in in the back end, so if you take a software engineer, for example, say I was looking for a software engineer who's going to be working on a 3D game in Unreal 4 or 5. So what I would put in there, um, I'd put in the base coding language that I would want, C++, C Sharp, C. Um, and then I would put in the engine that I would want, Unreal, Unreal 4, if I want to be more specific. And then I'd want to, are there any specifics around that engineer that I want to look at? Is it rendering? Is it tools? Is it UI? Or is it just base engineer? And so if you don't have that your programming skill is C++, that your language is C++, you're not going to come up my search. If you don't list your game engine, you're not going to come up in my search. And I think that there is a tendency to undershare, but every language that you learn is a skill that somebody else may not have. And if you have a list of languages, that tells me that you are very good at learning them. And if you don't have C++, but you have C++, Python, Java, like, and you have, I I know that you have it in you to learn. Um, So that's kind of like what I would recommend to people. And this works whether you're from an underrepresented group or not. But the biggest hurdle is understanding that while there is a lot of institutionalized racism still at play in the majority of um, tech and in gaming, there are a lot of people like me who are really working hard to make sure that we are doing the most to change what these landscapes look like. Um, Because at the end of the day, um, a recruiter is different than the CEO of the company. And a lot of the times we will fight and we will advocate for the candidates that we know have the potential to excel in a role, even if they may not have like the perfect fit. 
And I think that that's something that I don't think a lot of people know about the recruiting process is that there is a lot that happens in the back end once we've started talking to you and once we've started pushing for you where we will keep hiring managers in check, keep expectations in check from the business side to the, to the talent side. And I just want people to understand that I can only help you if you do that first piece, like, let me find you. (laughs) And that like that breaks down walls. And, And honestly, almost every recruiting organization has DEI built into the core of what they're doing, because we all understand, like, from a business perspective, and I, I know a lot of people who like talk about DI on Twitter don't understand that you have to break it down in like business terms, but like from a business perspective, every study has shown that a more diverse workforce yields more capital for the company. It leads to more success. So from in um from a standpoint of a recruiter, we are often going to be working within company expectations to make sure that we're building a more diverse workforce because they want more money at the end of the day. And when you have a diverse workforce, you are more successful and more successful means more money. So I think that there are issues that can arise with recruiters. I think there are definitely issues that can arise with hiring managers, but that you can't control that. What you can control is getting to the door. And then you just got to hope that, you know, somebody's going to open it for you. And sometimes that's a larger, that's a longer path than not. Um, I was without a job for six months after I got laid off. Um, and I, I mean, I had a meta as a fang company. It's, it's one of the larger companies. Um, I have a master's degree. Um, I, I know SQL, there aren't many recruiters who know SQL and like Tableau and Looker and like data analysis skills. And so I thought I was going to have like a really easy time. I didn't. Um, and that's what the job market is now. So you just need to make sure you are doing what you can and what you can control. And that is just beefing out that LinkedIn profile and make different resumes if you're applying for an analyst role, an engineer role, those are two different resumes. Make different resumes for different jobs. <laughs> Please yeah. help yourself. <laughs> I I um I also like I through various jobs over my career, I've been in positions where I've had to like look at people's resumes. And this seems like such a small thing, but like really like creative, like colorful resumes have always stood out to me. And I mine is pink. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I had a purple one. And there was one like, I had tried making it by myself in um, one of the Adobe apps that I can't remember anymore. Yeah, But it was like fine. And then I just like went and bought like a $3 one off Etsy. And it just got like the, the, the PDF downloaded. And I got job offers like so quick after sending that one out. And I was like, Oh, I was like, this actually worked. And now looking at resumes, I'm like, hey, it's like the tiniest thing sometimes that really like stand out. I'm like, oh, you put a lot of effort into it, even though I bought mine. We also want to know why some resumes work better than others. Yeah. Um, They need to be built for ATS to scan it. So a lot of larger recruiting organizations, they digitize resumes that are submitted to them and they have keyword filters that will toggle out um, auto rejects and accepts and put you into different buckets. So if you okay. give a, if you're not in a creative role, so if you're, if you're like going to go into like creative marketing or any sort of like creative, like brand area, 
go all out, like make that thing look as cool as you can, because that's a skill that you're showcasing. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, make sure you buy something off Etsy or use a template in Word that will make it easily readable by an AI to pull out the stuff, because that is just what it is. An ATS is an applicant tracker system. That is the thing that every recruiting org has, and they use it to keep track of candidates but a lot of them parse out information. Um, That's also why I recommend people have a LinkedIn because what you can do is um, you can submit using your LinkedIn profile Mm -hmm. and then attach a separate file with a more creative resume. So that way what's happening in that situation is the ATS is reading from the LinkedIn side and then you have your creative piece on the other side as well. Um, That happens a lot too. (laughs) <laughs> that's very smaller good places won't yeah. use it so like indie game studios they're probably not going to be using right. something like that but if you're doing anything that is um for a larger scale organization they will probably have an ats that is running through resumes that way right i mean yeah it's yeah if you're getting thousands of applicants it's a day it's, yeah <laughs> it would be so hard to sit and read through each one yeah without having to go through an ets yeah, no, okay. but it, it is the little things though like my resume is pink like i have a standard template but what i did was the little lines i just turned them pink and then i turned my header pink with my name like yeah just- yeah mine was like <laughs> um i did like a set it was like this left side was like purple and then that's where like my skills were kind of like bulleted out yeah i had like little sliders that had just like little pops of color um and i remember I spent like hours picking the right font, like just like little things where I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, it's, I'm like, it might not matter to anybody else, but I do like yeah. love fonts. I recruited, I like- recruited in like brand strategy and like communication pieces a little while when I was at Meta. And oh my God, I love, I love brand people's resumes. They're, they're so good. They're always innovative. <laughs> yeah. They're always like, they're just great. Um, so yeah. And, and I will say too, like, I think what people should understand is that what works for one job profile is not going to work for everybody's. So like, if you're like my recruiting resume is very specific, um, to, it, it looks different than my, my research resume, which highlights all my research skills, but it, it is also more masculine, which is, this is going to be funny. Um, so recruiting is a female dominated space. I have no problem making it pink. If I'm applying to a data analyst role or a research role, it is dark navy blue. And I've taken out a lot of the flowery language. It is very reduced. And that is just because you have that. That is my hack for getting through implicit bias that happens um, in more male dominated spaces. Um, And then my creative, my, um, my freelance uh, resume uh, is just, it's, it's cool. It's it's cute, <laughs> but, like it's just it's yeah. cool, guys. It's, it's cool. It's cute. Um, no, and it is. It's one of those things where you really have to um, understand the space that you're trying to get hired in and what people typically look for. Um, I also recommend people like just do a good LinkedIn stalking every now and again. Like if you missed out on a role and you found somebody who got that role after, don't message them. That that's too much. But like just look at their profile, look at what they highlighted. And a lot of times LinkedIn, some people will put their resumes attached to LinkedIn and just click on their resume and like see how they formatted it and see what they did and ask your friends. Like 
that is something that I think a, a lot of the scariness about getting hired for something is because we don't know what people are looking for. Mm-hmm. And one of the easiest ways to solve that is to look at the people who are getting hired and see what their what their skills are, what they're doing, and don't copy it, but find ways to highlight yourself in those similar ways because that is going to get you a lot further than just kind of making assumptions or getting really hypercritical of what you're putting forward because sometimes it is just certain styles fit in in different places. Yeah. I mean, I did that. I've done that probably multiple times while going through my LinkedIn. I like am notorious for it's like, oh, what did you do in this job? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have no idea. Like, what did I do? Like, I can't even think of like simple tasks. So then I like go and look at someone else who I'm like, oh, I worked with them. And I just like look to see what they've bulleted out. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, wait, yeah. I'm like, I did that. I'm like, oh, that's a great way to put that. Um, Yeah, I am pro like LinkedIn stalking. (laughs) And just to see what how people like, yeah, you're marketing yourself. And if you're not a natural self-marketer, I guess, like sometimes it's really hard to think about, like, how do you do that? How do you sell yourself? Um, But yeah, no, that's like all like great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope some people listen to that, take it to heart, maybe like go refresh your LinkedIn page and your, your resume. And please do job hunting, I wish you the best because I know yeah. it is rough out there. And I was I was part of that long unemployed employment period during COVID. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not fun. I'm glad I have a job. <laughs> yeah. And I would say too, like, especially if you're in the games industry or in the tech industry right now, like there is so much talent that is coming from the top companies that are out there that it is really hard to kind of get attention and kind of stand out. Um, And this is where I say, like, if you, no matter who you are, reach out to your friends. Like, it may sound dumb, but like most referral programs, if you have a friend and they refer you to a open job at their work, they will be they will be told if you make it through and most of the times it's an expedited process so at the very least you'll get a no quickly if you don't you know if yeah. you don't get a yes um like it it sounds weird cuz i think networking is something that is kind of amorphous um but i think when you know people and you're mutuals with people um it's totally okay to just be like hey can you give me a referral like to this to the company that I want to like, this is a job I'm looking at or like, Hey, is there anything open? Um, because referrals do get prioritized differently in, in the majority Mm -hmm. of companies that are there. Um, and it's just, it's really hard right now. Like I'm in recruiting and DEI. Those are two work, uh, like jobs that have been decimated, (laughs) uh, pretty much. Um, but yeah, their recruiters do good work. Um, so I know that our industry or our, our our corner of the industry will bounce back because we're kind of the we're the first stop, in my opinion, for DI initiatives, and we're the people that make sure that people that are coming into the company are prepared to do their jobs. And so recruiters' role is extremely multifaceted. 
And I think companies are going to realize that when they let all of us go, they've lost a lot of the ways that they made their business good in the first place. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for being that advocate for people and doing the work that you're doing. I do want to ask you a question that's not like off topic, but I am curious. Um, and if you don't have an answer or thoughts, that's totally fine. But in the tech industry specifically, we've seen a lot of um, Black women and women of color leaving high positions within companies. Um, I can't think of who they were. Um, but it's just, it seems like this like almost shift in the industry in the opposite direction of where we should be going. And if you have thoughts there, I would like to know like yeah. why you think that is. Um, so very and- specifically, women and and women of color are leaving um, established roles at companies because they're starting their own. That's a lot of what is happening. Um, or they have been, um, and this doesn't remove any of like the stuff that they may have dealt with, but like if we look in the tech industry specifically, there were very few women that held a C-suite position. Um, and just yeah. like I was at Meta when Cheryl left and, but Cheryl had an entire foundation that she was running and she had been there for almost, I think like a decade and she didn't mean to stay that long. And she chose to leave so that she could focus on the other endeavors that she was doing. And I think that when you look at a lot of what women are doing in this space, um, and specifically, um, and I, I would say specifically Black women in this space, one of the things that they're doing is they are starting and founding their own businesses and their own rivals to existing tech companies that they're, that they're coming from. Um, so it, it's not as grim like it's grim because they're not getting replaced with with the representation that you would want for that level but there is also something amazing happening where they are leaving and they are giving back to their communities or they're creating rival companies to eventually take over pieces and i think that that is something that can't be missed and i think when you just kind of look at the headlines it you don't realize the full context of what's happening. Um, but most tech jobs, if you did not found that company, you're looking at maybe two to five years and then you're out. Um, and then a lot of VP roles um, will usually stay in until you're done with whatever you were launching or heading and then you'll you'll phase out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there's a lot of uncertainty in tech right now and what is going to make consistent money. So you're seeing a lot of, uh, VP to C-suite level people in general leaving those areas because they are either in volat- uh, volatile products or they are, um, shifting gears into, uh, and they are shifting gears into something that is more, more level and consistent in, in the work base. Again, doesn't negate any of the stuff, any women and specifically black women and, and brown women have had to deal with in those roles. Cause it is largely, um, in, in every function, it's been proven that women are, forced to take on more work because they're forced to do the more caring roles. So a lot of the times they'll have to do more of the communications. They'll have to do more of the front facing pieces. They'll have to take in the more social impacts of what they're doing. And those wear on a person and that inequality um, in work distribution is something that does, that is tied directly to like the systemic issues within our industry, within, within tech and even in gaming. Um, 
But I think that it's important to know that these women aren't, aren't leaving. They're just making yeah. something new. Yeah, you the you nailed it with the the headlines <laughs> are very misleading and I like I saw like Twitter threads that were like totally blowing it into the a different proportion of like, <sighs> yeah. like this is disastrous, like they're like more stressed than ever, it's horrible. And I was like, yeah. Oh my god, what is happening? Which yes, they probably are more stressed than everybody yes. else. And like it is disastrous in a way, but like like you mentioned, if they're finding better opportunities or starting their own companies, like then in the long run, like that's better for them. That'll be better for their companies. Um, but yeah, it's it's rough. Yeah, no, it, it's rough out there. It it really is. Um, and I think that it's felt at all places. Um, I think in my in my spheres, it's it's really hard. Um, especially because I, I, I would say if you want to get grim, get grim about the number of DEI positions that are being eliminated because they're not going to come back. Um, that is the harsher truth. Uh, when yeah. I was applying for roles, there was a lot of hybrid DEI roles and it was because they expected one person to do the job of everything. And so um, either you were going to be a program manager who is also doing all of this recruiting, all these other pieces, and like 30% of your job was DEI, or you were going to be a standard recruiter, but we we're going to make you do DEI because we didn't want to fund that part of the org anymore. And now right. you just have to do everything. And I think that that's probably the scarier thing is a lot of places have maintained keeping a VP of people and culture, but they've shifted gears when it comes to their actual um, ICs and directs. Uh, so like the, the employees who are reporting to people and then like the mid-level management, there's a lot of um, isolating and elimination happening in those positions that I think is is cause for concern in, in all mm -hmm. industries. Um I do want to like. I'm not speaking for my company at all. Like, I'm I I I love working <laughs> at HG, and we have like we have a really really great team that that, that has put investment and thought and care into um, diversity and inclusion, um, and the weight behind that. But mm -hmm. I think the reality is for a lot of people in the tech space, like the the DEI um, piece isn't being cared for as much, and I think half of that has to do with the industry is just not wanting to expend money for that role or the amount of work that goes into changing tides at industries. And I mean, to be truthful, the other half is a lot of people on Twitter don't understand that like a DEI project starts and it will not be done for like a year to five. And yeah. when you start yelling about somebody's initiative and that it isn't enough or moving fast enough, you are actually hurting the people in those positions because we're working really hard but we're having to undo decades of malpractice, right. <laughs> malpractice and institutionalized things that you can kind of only do so much. And the negative impact from the public perspective does directly impact the amount of funding DI, um, DI initiatives get, the, um, the choices of what they do. Um, I think really clearly, like one of the best examples of like Twitter getting really mad at, um, at a company was... Uh, Ubisoft had like hired a like actually put in the work to hire a DEI team and a DEI mm -hmm. director, and they had said, okay, well, like we like because we can't do anything immediate and this is going to be a long process, we're going to donate funds to X Y Z, 
And then everybody's mad. I was like, well, it shouldn't take long. And it's like, no, you're restructuring a company. That is not an overnight thing, my guy. Like, calm yeah. down. <laughs> so I, I wish people understood the complexities that go into fixing fixing things that other people broke and don't always want to be fixed. Um, it's a tough job. Yeah. It, I had to like look up the dates cause I couldn't remember, but it, it made me think of riot games, which yeah. in 2018, it mm-hmm. came out that they had no women in leadership in any mm-hmm. leadership position. And then last year's DEE and I report, like they, they hired someone to had a diversity team, um, and as of last year, there were women compromised 21.5% of their leadership team. So that's like what, that's four phenomenal. years, like it, it is a huge like turnaround, but like to think about it, you're like, okay, like for 20% hiring, like that took them four years. So yeah. what you're mentioning, no. like it takes a long time and there's all these companies that like, yeah. I really want to say like 2020 probably with George Floyd and there just was so much going on and mm-hmm. with COVID and just like it, a lot of things were being exasperated and coming to light. And I think a lot of these companies got exposed or were like, Oh, mm-hmm. like we don't have a diverse team and they hired DEI people. And now it's like three years later and they're like, Oh, like not much has changed. Cause like you said, it's a lot of work and you have to undo decades yep. of yep. what like a system that they have yeah. put together and, and implemented. That's going to take like- more than three years. Yeah, and to Riot's case, like it any any cycle, so one job opening, you're looking at maybe a month to three months to close that one job. And then you like you can't just go and make new roles. Like you you can't do that. Um, you have to wait for people, you have to wait for attrition to leave and, and have open roles. And then you can put forward an effort to diversify, but you can't only have women go into those like it is it is a talent piece at the end of the day so like when you're looking at how hard it is to move a needle like it's a herculean effort to move a needle Mm -hmm. and i i think riot is is a really good example of people who put in the work to show that change and i know that it seems like such a small amount but it's actually really big for four years time which is the number of roles that you that would have to open and close within that time the number of people that you would have to both attract and source like it's yeah <laughs> um i was trying to put together like 20 percent of oh that'd be of leadership roles i was gonna say right has like three thousand employees and i was like what's 20 percent? that's a lot i'm doing the math wrong so never mind yeah, um, yeah <laughs> it, it, it's it's still a lot it's not 600 people but it's it's still, it's a, still lot. a lot it's still a lot um well, I, we could probably talk about this topic the whole time, but I am going to move us a little bit along because there's a couple other things I want to talk with you about. Um, and I guess a nice bridge is, so we've been talking about diversity, something like you're obviously very passionate about and you have worked at in your career. Um, you founded But Why Though, and which is also a space and outlet that amplifies um, voices and underrepresented voices in the industry. Is this something you knew you wanted the outlet to be in the beginning when you started it? Or is that just like, just how it happened to be? Because it's like, who you uh, are and yeah. like your full-time job? 
So it's funny. Um, one of the things that I like to point out with um, podcasts and websites and stuff like that, like whenever you're building from the ground up is like, uh, when you are having to right away be like, oh my God, I need to find X, Y, and Z because it's all white dudes on here. It's like, dude, that, that, that just shows you like you built that initially and you didn't have anybody around who, around you who weren't non-white. And, um, so it's kind of like twofold. So the reason I say that is because diversity was always a focus of what we were doing, but it was implicit because we had a naturally diverse community because it's just what it was. We, we started as a podcast in 2017 and after a year in 2018, I told my husband, I was like, Hey, I kind of want to start writing again. Cause all of this came out of, um, I left my PhD program, but I still wanted to do, um, research and teach people, which is what I saw the podcast as being. And then I, got the itch to write. And I was like, Hey, I really want to start writing. Like, what should we do? Um, and he was like, you should just make a tweet and see if anybody else wants to write in our community. Um, and then we did that and we started like a little volunteer kind of blog. Um, and as we started trying to get, I don't want to say like a press accreditation and see who was getting pulled for opportunities and stuff like that. I realized probably about like a year, year and a half in where one, we looked very different than the other sites that were getting opportunities. We were a majority female at the time. We obviously Latina led. Um, and we were in a situation where it was very clear that the voices that were getting the focus all looked the same. And so yeah. mine was, okay, well, what do I need? Like, what do I need to succeed? And then um, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm platforming people who have perspectives on pop culture that aren't getting attention? Um, and the real focus was making sure that we were highlighting everything. Uh, we were doing work in international spaces. We were championing projects that were really important to us, but also um, because of the makeup of our site naturally were, were diverse projects. And that's when it became something that I knew we wanted to put forward um, mm -hmm. was that we were a group of people who platformed those who were often um, neglected in the pop culture entertainment space and in the criticism space. Um, and I think that with that, we ended up just kind of, it's weird. I have a hard time explaining this question now. If you'd asked me like a year or two ago, I would have told you, but like, I realize now in a lot of like afterthought was I had a hard time saying like, oh yeah, like we're, we're a group of like, we're a really diverse group of folks where, you know, we have a Latina lead, we have like a bunch of like uh, ex-academics running our editorial team, like mm -hmm. we're an extremely queer site where, and I felt weird leading with that because personally I had been taught never to lead with that, like in my own profession, um, in academia and those pieces, because I did not want people to only see us as the token at the table. I wanted people mm -hmm. to value and see our work. And so when it came to advocating for us in spaces, it was like, here are our numbers, here is our impact, this is what we're doing. And we also happen to be a diverse audience, uh, a, a diverse um, group of writers with an audience that skews predominantly um, Black and Latino. And my husband has been 
pretty central in helping me do that because like I am not doing this full-time obviously I have a full-time job um, but mm-hmm. he runs a lot of the back end and that allows me to do a lot of the um, outreach and marketing end of things and just kind of like make those connections with people really um, put all of us in the space where we need to be um, and then he handles all the back end pieces um, he's like he's doing everything in the back. Um, and I think like one of the things that like we've realized over time is that you can do a lot of work to try and be diverse. And that I, that's my day job trying to make organizations more diverse, but really living it and really focusing on what you can do. It's about opening that door and like really helping people get where they want to go. Like our site has been, um, I mean, we're, we're really cool. We're credited on Rotten Tomatoes or credit with Metacritic. We've, we've moved a lot of mountains or we've climbed a lot of mountains and like faced a lot of stuff to get recognition in especially games. Like we still don't get recognition from a lot of companies. Um, but what we've, how we've been able to do it is by making sure that everybody feels valued and everybody is picking the things that they want to do. Like we, we don't really have like that many assignments at our site. And those are all like little things that I don't think people think of. Like if you have a black writer at your site, they shouldn't only be forced to review black films. If you have a Latino writer on your site, they shouldn't only be forced to review Latino films. And I think that a lot of sites when they're hiring freelancers and when we look at like the trades they're they're like oh we need we need somebody who is is x to do this but that's the only time they bring them in they're not staffing them and we're an indie site yes and we don't have the money to staff anybody um but we do have a way for somebody to build up their portfolio so they can potentially get staffed somewhere like we've gotten people staffed at a few a few outlets and it feels good to kind of help them move the needle. But yeah, that was a really long way to answer that question. Like, yes, it was at the core of what we were doing, but also it was natural. And also it feels, I've had to overcome a lot. Like we, we've, to put it in perspective, we've never done a Kickstarter. Um, everything that we've done is because I used to give my, if I made a bonus at Meta, I would put it back into the site. Um, so that we could expand pay and do those things. And a lot of it was funded by my salary. And mm-hmm. it's because I've been kind of wrangling with myself to ask for help and to like highlight what we're doing because of all the things I was taught not to do. Um, yeah. So now we're in a space where um, we're just having to like readdress it and kind of focus on on everything. And, and we're really communicative with our writers. Like we represent ourselves in a way that they all feel comfortable being represented. Um, but yeah, that was a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, it, no, you're totally fine. It's I very understandable. And yeah, I get it. Like you don't want to be like this token site of like, Oh, you're only going to go read, but why though? Because you're looking for like just the diverse takes like you just, and like you said, yeah, it's a black writer should be able to write about anything that they want to write about. It's not they don't have to write about black media or like yep. that kind of stuff, which, yeah, is something that you do see on some other sites and which is unfortunate. Um, 
still sometimes needed. Like, yeah, like you want, yeah, you don't want to have just is. like you're it's, right. It's, it's a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. It's learning how to make sure that the people who can offer the best critique on something are getting the platform to do that, but also making mm-hmm. sure that you're giving them opportunities to talk about other stuff. Because I probably, like, I think if you just take me, for example, like, oh, yeah. I love Latino media, Flamin' Hot, right up my alley. I was always going to review that. Yes. But also, I am a huge Western fan. And so Sisu is a movie that I knew I wanted to review because it was, it, I'm a huge action fan. I'm a huge um, Western fan. And those are two genres that I love. So like, of course, I would be the one to take that movie. And I think that that is a lot of how people don't necessarily always structure what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I, it's, it's interesting because I would say in the film and anime space, the diversity of our site doesn't always feel as different. Like it's just kind of natural. Um, but in the gaming space, like there's a lot of times I'm the only brown woman in the room. Um, a lot of times I'm like one of two women in the room, but most of the times I'm the only woman who isn't white in the room. And I think that like, that is something that becomes extra apparent. But also something that's a little bit harder to overcome. Um, you mean like when you're like reviewing games or like, like yeah, in gaming spaces um, like specifically? Yeah, when I'm in gaming spaces yeah. specifically. Um, which it gets, yeah, it's a little hard. Because <laughs> yes, like it's, it's hard being a woman in games already, but if you, it, it's, it's a double whammy. It's, it's noticeable. <laughs> I have noticed, yeah. I'm fairly new to the gaming industry. I joined. A little over two years ago and that was still like pretty locked down so it wasn't until like last year mainly like this year where it's like i've started to go to more like industry events and i in like talks and i'm like yeah it's it is yeah. obvious and feels a little shocking and uncomfortable and needs a lot of work in that space yeah but and that and that's one of the reasons why like we 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 do what we or I do it what I do um, both as a recruiter in the games industry proper and then as somebody running a media outlet is it it's just about making sure that like everybody gets a chance to have the mic and that that's mm-hmm. just what it is um, and for us I think one of the things that we've been really proud of is we are always there to give references. We're always there to try to get people jobs. I do resume reviews for some of my writers. Like we, we do what we can to get people to spaces where they can get staffed and do what they love full time. But I think one of the things that we're mm-hmm. really proud of is like having not taken any outside money and, and stuff like that. Like we have a Patreon, but like, that's, it's not, it's not keeping the lights on. It, it's helping. It's helping greatly, but it is yeah. one of those things where like, we've been able to do a lot on our own and we've been able to move to a paper piece um, model, which was something we were really proud of. Um, I think we did that like two year, two years ago. Um, but it's always like, how can we do better? Like how can we do give more opportunity and help other people? And that a lot of the times includes me and my husband, Matt, who, like I said, runs the back end piece, working longer nights, doing more, like just putting in the extra like work to get stuff done so that the site can mm-hmm. start moving from like the back perspectives. Like we've changed our servers like three times. We've, we've changed hosting sites. Like it's, it's a lot of pieces, but we do what we can for folks. Yeah. 
Um, for the Patreon, we can, I, I like encourage everybody who's listening to oh, yeah. go check out the Patreon. <laughs> we'll link it in the description you. so you can check it out. Um, do you want to like give a quick blurb? Like if people support the Patreon, do you guys have um, special content for your Patreon so- members? We used to, <laughs> okay. but then we got really tired, which has been hard because like, I don't think we've been able, people think that we're a lot bigger than we are, but it is literally just me and my husband on a hamster wheel, wheel trying to keep everything alive. <laughs> um, and so we have like, I think the only thing actually we have now is we do a biweekly podcast with our entire site. Um, so we have like one main host and then each of our writers kind of cycles in to talk about different, uh, different topics in, um, the different entertainment in- industries. Um, but we, we used to do a few different podcasts, um, but it was really hard to keep up with them. Um, so mm-hmm. we don't really have much now. I, I put out like a sad video. I was like, I'm so sorry. We're just very <laughs> tired. Um, Look, it's fine. I, I let an old podcast just. Yeah, it's like I just let an old podcast just die and we never even like we're like we're gonna come back, I promise. Um for yeah, I'm not even gonna say it, but it's but I will it's say water. You, it's a lot of work. Do, it is, it's a lot. But I will say if you do um if you do subscribe and stuff, I will say that money directly goes to keeping our site online. Like that is used to pay for our hosting fees, that is used to pay for our developer to make sure that when something breaks as it often does when you own a website, um, they can fix it and it goes to, um, all that. So there is something tangible that I can point to that says this Patreon money does this thing. Um, cause I, yeah, keeping a website up is actually hard. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. It's so yes, yeah, so I, if you might not get a special podcast episode, but definitely go and support it. Like you can feel Support good the, in your the sites that you like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people who are listening to this probably have a good idea of what's happening in the journalism, video game journalism industry. Yeah. And it's really tough. So now is like the time to really support the the sites and the writers that you like and enjoy yeah. reading. Because um, yeah. it's just, I, it's hard. It's hard. And, and like indie sites, like we get bullied out for con- like we don't get invited to all the preview events we don't we don't get to do all the like the stuff that like helps people get more traffic which helps them get more money and i, I think it's really hard because when you're an indie site you don't necessarily want to talk about money because like i don't pay myself my husband doesn't pay himself like we, we do it free because there's no way to pay our writers and pay ourselves and i don't believe if you're running something you should not be paying yourselves that's any business owner will tell you that <laughs> you 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 do a business and you hope you can get to the point where you're paying your employees and eventually one day you can pay yourself but um one of the things that i i do realize now is that the media landscape is 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 shrinking and it is a lot of um the five different ign's like ign india ign japan ign proper ign brazil all get access to one thing and it's like okay but what about the indie sites that are out here grinding and working and doing without any of that VC backing. And I think that now it's really important to support independent journalism. And I think that when you, whether it's us or somebody else, like we feel the impact of a dollar a month. Like it it sounds dumb, but we really do. Um, That helps us figure out how to set our budgets that helps us increase our rates it helps us make the site better um seeking opportunities um 
it, it's one of those things where like the situation is pretty dire for journalism and indie sites, whether it's us or somebody else, like we can feel the impact of somebody caring for us. Um, like we honestly, um, there have been more than a couple of times where we've almost shut down because we just didn't know how we were going to do it. Um, like when I got laid off, like I didn't, like I was paying from like my salary to do it. And luckily my husband and I had a plan and we were able to like get it off the ground without like it affecting any of our rates, but everybody's going through that at different levels right now. And so if there's somebody that you like reading or a writer that you really support, find a way to make that impact because they're going to feel it and they're going to be really thankful. Could not have said that better than myself. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's, oh, like so sad to hear just how close, like, I really do enjoy reading But Why Though and like Mm -hmm. working with you guys when I can. Um, Thank you. I've like mentioned it on this podcast before, but I'm like, there's just something about like, you can really tell how passionate some writers are. And I like, I feel that when I read your guys' content and it's kind of like what you you said is you're allowing people to write about what they want to write about. And I think some of the best journalism comes from that rather than an assignment and like not that assignments are bad sometimes it can be something they're interested in as well but yeah yeah it's it's not like rote work it's they're they're passionate about the thing that they're writing about and that is where i find value in journalism oh thank you yes of course no thank you god like you're using your own (laughs) salary for keeping the site together and it's just uh it's there's so much value in it and i know like we try and share that with um our clients and like you guys are on our list and stuff like that so i hopefully you get to a point where you don't have to use your salary for (laughs) yeah (laughs) to keep the lights on (laughs) we're we we've made some good calls recently where i think i think we're gonna be fine at least for this year but um Mm -hmm. i think we're finally gonna try to do a kickstarter or something to get some crowdfunding going but it's a lot of like my husband and my senior editor being like kate just make it. I'm like, but no, we can do it. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's really, it, how do you explain it? I don't know. I, I feel really happy when I get to see my writers doing cool things. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's why, uh, so we have two folks going to SDCC and one of them is intera- is interviewing a voice actor that he, he just loves like he has loved him for years he has never gotten to do it and now he gets to and like there's just something nice about being able to connect people to opportunities and in a way that like helps them and like gives them a memory to kind of take back um yeah so so yeah but we're, we're we're out here we're doing it we just did anime expo we'll have sdcc coverage um and then we'll be at pax west as well and then there's a few film festivals scattered in that time too, but yes. Oh, I can't wait to read the film film festival coverage. I, it's Sam's not here Yay. either, but he would say the same thing. We're <laughs> big film nerds. That's like our outside oh, of games. Awesome. Love reading and talking about film and TV. And yeah, I look forward to that coverage and yeah, I might be at PAX. So I might see you there. Yes, um, please. Not confirmed because I will be at Gamescom. So I'm like, do yeah. I want to do it back to back? I probably will. Um, but yeah, I that should be a lot of fun. Um, well, 
Okay, I know I said we were going to talk about like video games and pop culture, but I think we are been going over an hour. <laughs> so I talk I a think, lot. <laughs> no, I do too. And like, I really, I didn't want to like stop any of our discussions early because I, you just shared a lot of great insight and I really appreciate it. So let's put a pin in the pop culture discussion. Um, maybe like if you want to come back, you're free to come back and we can do like a whole episode oh, on that because I was it was ambitious for me to be like let's talk about three major things um <laughs> and people are probably yeah. like ready for ready for a snack so, or a drink or the bathroom <laughs> I do want to say um I hope that people listening to this like they or watching it understand that you can have a really untraditional background and still wind up in an industry that you want to be in um just know that because I think it's kind of intimidating when you want to get into a space. So yeah, it's also really the games industry, I feel like is very hard. And yeah, like you mentioned, like you kind of have to know people not for everything. Yeah. Um, it's just easier. So I know people who, um, gosh, I just kind of even myself just like uh, networked my way into the industry. I didn't yeah. have video game PR experience. Um, I just was really annoying on Twitter <laughs> and just like, that was, that's a lie. Well, maybe some people might've found me annoying, but like, I just talked about games all the time and like talked to like at people and eventually like had conversations going and like, yeah, eventually someone noticed me and they're like, you have a PR background and obviously you're very interested in games. Like, let's see what we can do here. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned it before, networking is just so important. See what you could do. And even so, like, there's lots of other industries that have very transferable skills. The games industry has yes. many different positions. Um, yeah. So, Being yeah, a game dev isn't advice. just building the game. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much. And that's something, like, I, I will say, too, like, just to plug, like, the work that Iron Galaxy is doing. We do these things called Press Start on your career. Uh, they're called Press Starts. Um, we usually tie them to affinity months this year, um, or we have been tying them to affinity months. Um, there will be one for um, Hispanic Heritage Month. And uh, the reason I say this is because our press starts are really, really cool. Uh, we get different uh, developers at the studios to talk about their experience in games, what they've gone through, their trajectory in their career. And ultimately, you get to have a direct line to recruiters as well on our team to um, either you can reach out to us for portfolio reviews or resume reviews, and then you can have uh, direct access to our general application as well to, uh, to get involved. So I always recommend people do it. It's one of the reasons why I really wanted to work at Iron Galaxy is because it's really easy to say um, we want to diversify an industry. It's, it, it's, it's harder to put in the action and a lot of the, the work that they've been doing um, that is, you can see all on our LinkedIn, uh, is, is, is really good work. And so I, I definitely, uh, if you're looking to get into the games industry, look at like what different companies are doing to do like little events like that. Um, a lot of the times they'll give you that nice little foothold. Perfect. Yeah. We'll link to the Iron Galaxy LinkedIn as well in the description. So you have an easy link to that. <laughs> well, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kate. This was just a fantastic discussion. Thank you for being on here. Um, one last quick question. Um, 
kind of off topic, but just the way to end it, because I'm curious, what was the last thing you finished watching on TV? I am watching One Piece right now because I've decided <laughs> to do that with my life. Because uh, the of first time? Expo. For the first time. Never, never seen it before. I've always tapped out like within the first like 13 episodes. I am on episode 48. It's been three days. I am... Yeah, my best friend loves One Piece. One of the PR folks from Crunchy that we were with, like all Anime Expo, she was like, you should watch One Piece just constantly. And then yeah. I think it was just a ploy where my friend constantly wanted to go to the Toei booth to like look and see if they had something. But I just heard the We Are opening theme nonstop so that I was like singing it like by the last day of the convention. So here I am on the journey to become a straw hat. Oh, so, man. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's a I'm sign. I, I am also one because I used to live with my brother and he watches like lots of anime and he would always watch it. And so like I've seen episodes and I have also started it from the beginning and got like 10 episodes in. Yep. And then I started watching something else because that's just how I am. So I will, I will say episode 19, it was one of those my friend was like, look, if you don't pay attention to the whole thing, just leave it on. Leave it on and an episode is going to happen and it's going to stop you in your tracks. And I was like, you're full of crap. Like that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then it happened with episode 19 and I've been hooked in ever since. So like, okay, let it roll. <laughs> All right. I will like make myself a note to watch at least till episode 19. It's funny. I always yes. tell people that I'm like, you just have to get to like episode three, but like with anime, there's so many episodes. You're like, gosh, oh, you only have to watch like 30 episodes there's way too and then much. skip a hundred and then watch the next hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, go watch one piece. Um, I may watch it. I, but who knows? Because a year ago we had a podcast where Sam told me to watch the bear and I said I would, and it took me a whole year. So I just finished it and I loved it. Um, I'm about like a year behind on when I say I'm going to watch something when I actually watch it. Um, but <laughs> have a good rest of your day, Kate. Uh, thank you so much. And maybe we'll have you on in the future. Cause I would love to talk about pop culture, but we don't need like a three hour episode. <laughs> course thank you so much um oh and i totally forgot our outro because it's just one of those days uh kate where can people find you on online uh so you can find me at oh Mithrandir on everything uh and i have to say that because twitter is dying uh but i yeah. would say the two the three platforms that i'm most active on is going to be twitter instagram and threads like threads is just really easy to use um so you'll you'll find me there um sometimes i'm insightful other times i am just doing random things and you can follow but why though at but why though pc um all of our writers are tagged in their reviews so i highly suggest you go and you follow them we have a lot of really insightful folks over there doing a lot of great work um and cool thing about us we're one of the few sites that consistently covers international content all year out all year long so if you are looking for the best of like japanese dramas k-dramas indian cinema like any of the stuff that's available to people uh we cover it in our film and tv section they do a lot of high a lot of heavy lifting over there um and of course uh we have dedicated anime stuff as well so check us out we do cool things <laughs> yay um, I will link to the to those socials as well. Um, you can find me also at everywhere at Caitlin Redwing. Um, I 
I'm still using, I guess, Twitter, Instagram, um, and Blue Sky and Threads. <laughs> it's God, it's such a long list. Blue Sky is too I, sad for me. Everybody's sad on Blue Sky. It, it literally, it's because it's like we all got invites and then they cut us off. So now we're just like this like small group of people that can't invite our friends. And like to me, if the, all the invites were open, I'd be like, I don't want to use Threads. I would rather use yeah. Blue Sky. Only because I hate that Threads doesn't have like the the following tab and yeah, like hashtags don't yeah. work. And I'm like, I don't know. It's each each app has something that doesn't the other one has. And I they just need to like mesh together. I don't know. Everything's sad. <laughs> um, but you can find me on those. You can find the podcast. You can find the podcast at real time strats. Um, just on Twitter. I don't have any invites for Blue Sky to put our podcast on there. Um, and maybe eventually we'll go over to Threads. I'm just waiting to see what's going to survive, to be honest. Yeah, not wrong. I had one invite and my husband was like, you need to put it. You need to make a but why the one? I was like, that's a lot of work. And he was like, I'll do it. I was like, okay, here you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, my list so. of people is well, as soon as I get invites, it's like Sam or the podcast. I don't know which one will get it first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we'll see maybe they won't even send any more invites and it's just the small group that's allowed to use this app from now on that would actually be really funny <laughs> this is all there is now <laughs> this is all there is no one else is allowed honestly i'm here for it all right thank you so much for listening or watching everybody until next time bye